That is some smooth jazz. Welcome back to the Leon Lounge. Thanks for listening. Um, this is going to be part two of my bare knuckle boxing history. And uh, in the first one, I talked about Elizabeth Wilkinson. And uh, this time, I'm gonna I'm 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 moving on to some of the other people. And uh, so where I left where I left off was the boxing booths. So these boxing booths were like sideshow acts at these fairs and uh, carnivals and stuff like that and they used they used them like entertainment but for for the fighters it was you know this was like their main source of income and it was like generational and stuff like some people's um their great granddad was was a old school, you know, bare knuckle boxer, and then they became, and there was lots of stuff like that going on. And um, like most other things that are uh, good and fun, it became it became politicized somewhat, and you know, opposing political parties would would get involved sometimes. And of course, I'm sure there was a lot of. Um, betting and possibly uh, extortion going on or people fixed fights things like that and uh, that's just kind of how it was so th- there was a guy and he was one of the greatest fighters in uh, in, in the days of bare knuckle boxing and uh, his name was Tom Hickman and he was known as the Gaslight Champion because he would actually he would act, he was called the gaslight champion because he would actually um, talk to his opponents before the fight and tell them that you know they he would tell them that they that that the whole that he knew that the fight was rigged and they say no no it's not no it's not and he'd say it is it is you just you know you're just crazy no he didn't gaslight him like he didn't he didn't say things like that he would just they called him that because they said that his punching was so hard that it would actually uh knock out the the gaslights it would actually make it dim but the the speed of his punches would cause the lights to go out is what they would say but uh he had a short career but it was a bright one and uh it was a good one and the he died at 27 and he was crushed to death by a carriage Ain't that a shame. But Tom Hickman was involved in one of the most famous fights of the 19th century. And uh, the wagers on this fight laid on the outcome were uh, reputedly in the region of 150,000 pounds or whatever they were using back then, which is in in 1821. I mean, that was a lot of money. But... uh, he fought in front of upwards of 25,000 spectators, which is a lot of people. And um, uh, he was he was urged um, by the thousands watching to admit defeat. Um, from uh, the 1930s and onwards, uh, the interest in prize fighting again declined as a sport. But the fairgrounds provided it a home. And after the death of Tom Hickman... Uh, the boxers who had known him collected money for his widow and children in order to purchase a boxing show and volunteered to fight uh, on the booths for free of charge for the first year to guarantee them a 
a good start. Wow, that was really nice. So they all came together to really help out his family. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's camaraderie. And, and I can relate to that because when you, when you, when you, when you box with someone or you train with them in a gym day in, day out, I mean, you come, you become like a family and you, I mean, like they were basically his family and it's, you know, it's, it's similar to like, probably policemen on the job, you know, and you go through so much or are firemen and you go through these things and you go through training together and you, you go through the ups and downs of stuff with someone for years and, or whatever. And you become, you become, uh, you know, like a family and it's probably not rare for other things like this to go on, but you don't hear, you don't hear too much about it these days, but um, it, it's a nice thing and I, it, it, make, it makes you feel good that it was going on even then. But, uh, the, this is one of the more romantic and tragic stories, uh, you know, between a family and a particular boxing show. So the Hickman family, uh, entrance to the life of a traveling showman was, was owned to their ancestor, Tom Hickman, the gaslight man. So his grandson, Charlie Hickman, first traveled um, penalty shoots after running a variety of shows including Teeny Tiny Tony the world's smallest pony he traveled uh, he, he traveled his boxing booth with Pat Collins run of affairs of, uh, in the Midlands from the 1920s and onward so this became like a generational thing for, for the Hickman family and uh, many famous boxers were associated with this family um, the great grandson, so Charlie Hickman, the great grandson of Tom the Gaslight Man, who won the Lonsdale Championship at the Crystal Palace in 1931. And I, you know, I think there's some Crystal Palaces around here, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, a feat his illustrious ancestor never achieved. However, the showman who really bridged the gap between the bare knuckle days and the introduction of the Queensbury rules was Jim Mace. And that's J-E-M-M-A-C-E, Jim Mace, a man who many boxing historians see as the pioneer of the modern traveling boxing booth with his exhibition fights, stage show, and introduction of inviting all challengers into the ring. Hmm. So now we're moving on to a man by the name of Jim Mace. And uh, he's got a lot of, he's got, there's a lot of stuff about him. Um, I'm not going to go too 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 much into it but he he was a he was a showman he was a showman promoter and a boxer and he 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 bridged the gap between the old style boxing arenas and boxing as part of like the entertainment route he had a very controversial career so from 1858 onwards he fought for many unofficial titles and championships and uh despite quote unquote Retiring in 1867, he traveled to America in the 1870s and beat a, ba- a man by the name Tom Allen for the championship of the world. He traveled with a couple of other people, and uh, in the ner- early 1900s, poverty and uh, destitution caused by bad management and high uh, living resulted in Jim Mays at the age of 76. Wow. Yet again, traveling the fairs, circusing, circuses, and music halls. So this time, it, it was uh, he was a lecturer with uh, a guy by the name of Billy 
Lenave's troop of lady athletes and gentlemen boxers where he he played to pack houses so he was he would just stand up and talk and um he appeared at the world's Jim Mace appeared at the world's fair in 1910 and uh the a reporter describes Mace's popular appeal he said that uh he said Jim Mace was appearing with his troop of lady athletes and gentlemen boxers it was here that the crowds were flocking to, irrespective of party politics. They did not want to be bothered with political speeches. All they wanted was to see and hear the unconquered champion of the world. Their sole ambition was to gaze upon the veteran of the pugilistic ring so that every day and at every performance throughout the week, the standing order at this world fame establishment was either standing room only or house full. So that's what some some reporter said about Mace. And I know that's... <clears throat> they talked funny back then. You know, they were just... Fill, I feel like he was just filling the air there, kind of like I do on here a lot. But So Jim Jim Mace died not longer after this, appear, after this appearance on his 80th birthday. And the reporter recalls the ringing chorus that used to accompany Jim as he took the stage. And uh, people would chant and sing. They would sing, Good old Jimmy... Brave old James, take a list and run down the pugilistic names. Search through Fistiana and see if you can trace a man with such a record as old Jim Mace. That's a nice little ditty. There's so many of these guys. There's, there's a lot of them. And it's hard to it's hard to talk about each and every one of them. Um, so I try to only talk on the ones that have a, uh, a colorful you know, story or some sort of story uh, attached to them. But there was a fighter by the name of Lynn Johnson. And Lynn Johnson was a, he was a person of color. He was a, a black fighter. And he had a pretty uh, extensive fighting career. He was born, he was born in 1902. And uh, he was born in uh, Manchester, England. Uh, he was born to an English mother of Irish descent and a Sierra Leone Creole father. Ooh. So he was mixed race. Um, but he had two brothers, Albert and William, who were professional boxers, and one sister, Doris. And uh, his mother was a machinist, and she, bo- bo- both of her parents were from Ireland. But Johnson described his mother as Irish and proud of it. And uh, he spoke of her vicious treatment, such as her being facially disfigured after a brutal racist street attack in which she was targeted for being the wife of a black man. Wow, that's horrible. So uh, Johnson's father, William, served in the British Army during the First World War. And he... um. He he worked as a merchant seaman, a boxer, and a mechanical engineer. And he was from Sierra Leone. And he settled in Manchester after marrying Margaret. Though William was a middleweight, he claimed the heavyweight championship of the north of England in 1903 by beating Jack Lamb, who weighed 196 pounds in two rounds at uh, Staley Bridge, Manchester. And if I'm uh, mispronouncing any of these things, uh, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm not British. Uh, His earliest home 
was at 12 Barnabas Street in Clayton, and his family was lodging with Sal Connell and his wife. He stated that Connells were like parents to his mother and surrogate grandparents to him. The family left Manchester for Leeds, where his father established a traveling boxing booth. And he attended Jack Lane School at the Cockburn Schools in Leeds. Cockburn, that's a funny name. However, at the outbreak of World War I, uh, soon brought the family back to Manchester, which he would eventually lead to uh, young Johnson leaving school and begin to work as a foundryman at Crossley. Johnson grew up in a multicultural childhood with fellow immigrants of Jewish, Irish, Italian, and Yemeni backgrounds. And uh, despite the, but despite all the ethnic and racial diversity that was in Manchester during the early 1900s, the family experienced much hostility and violence. Johnson recalling being called I, things that I just I I can't say these words on here. I can't say them. Um. But his amateur career as a boxer, and I wanted to specifically, I wanted to specifically talk about Elizabeth Wilkinson because she was a woman, and specifically talk about Lynn Johnson because he was a he was a, a person of color. Um, because they, you don't hear a lot about it. Uh, but his amateur career uh, took him. His uh, Lynn Johnson's father, William, took him to his first boxing booth at the age of two, and he announced. His father announced him as being Lynn Johnson, the youngest boxer in the world. And uh, at the age of 19, Johnson was involved in a scuffle with a co-worker. And uh, after being separated by their each of their fathers, recognizing some talent, uh, Lynn, Lynn Johnson's father decided to enter him into some, some boxing bouts. So he saw, he saw that his boy could throw hands pretty well, and uh, he wasn't afraid to square up. So he... He asked him to, he said, how would you feel about towing the line someday? And booked him some fights. And uh, they were, they him and Johnson and his brothers were all taken to a, a boxing club. And, uh, you know, uh, th- th- they impressed him. The 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 people who ran the boxing club were, in, were impressed by Lynn Johnson. And uh, he, and Johnson realized that he, he, he had an eye for it too. And, and he remarked one day that he noticed that they didn't cover their faces when an opponent hit them in the eye. They snorted and went back in to retaliate. So he was he was used to people, you know, uh, acknowledging being hit, but these guys would just take it in stride and keep going, and that really intrigued him. Um, and that takes a different kind of person to, to have that mentality. But So they got him into a boxing booth, got him working as a boxer, and then he eventually fought some of the toughest fighters. <clears throat> Johnson spoke on his uh, on one of his victories, and he said, "That's the first stage in a boxer's finding his confidence." So I have a great debt owing to his opponent. So he felt like he owed his opponent because it gave him confidence, you know, after beating him. A few weeks after his third and fourth amateur losses, he was persuaded by friends to enter a competition at, at a boxing booth at a, at a fair. And, um, you know, the runner, the fair runner was impressed and offered him a job, which lasted six months. And Johnson greatly improved his skills and his stamina and he got that cardio up. And uh, he, although he, he had little knowledge of actually how to box, he trained as best as he could. Um, and his mother 
provided old an old clothesline which he would jump rope with. So he was skipping rope with a clothesline that his mother gave him. And uh, she fashioned him a pair of boxing shorts. Well, that is very interesting life, man, this guy had, honestly. And it's... You don't hear about, like, this guy, th- this could be a documentary. And I, if anybody has seen a documentary on Lynn Johnson, please let me know. I'd love to watch it, but I haven't uh, seen anything. And it would I, it would be a fascinating story. I mean, just the the hatred that they endured and the the hardships. And then there's a war going on. And then he's, you know, he's, 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 he's doing the best that he can. And he's, he's getting in fights at work. And then he's finding his calling through, you know, throwing hands. His professional career started in uh, April 1920, and he made his professional boxing debut at the age of 17 um, under the tutelage of a man named Fred Hall. So he suffered his first loss. Uh, it was a, a fourth-round knockout. So he was knocked out in his second, and it was a second fight, um, and it led to his move to the booths of a man by the name of Burt Hughes. His third fault took place... Uh, in 1921, his opponent was a fellow local teenager named Jerry Hogan, and Johnson Johnson laid him out in the third round. And Johnson remarked that uh, Hogan shoved his chin onto my hand, and down he went for the count. I really had no idea how I knocked him out. So, that's funny. Although Johnson started his professional career in 1920, he fought in boxing booths before turning professional, so he had a little uh, amateur experience. But uh, he used the booths for practice, and uh, he 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 went on to have a very a very good uh, career. And the you know the early fights were not without their their trials. And Johnson had lost seven additional fights by points decisions, and his first fight abroad which was a points defeat by, uh, f- by a man by the name of Frithjof Hansen in uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. So he traveled all the way to Denmark to fight this guy, and he lost by points. But uh, he started to eventually rise up the ranks, and uh, he had signed some... Uh, he, 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 got, he got signed to a contract to meet a former European middleweight champion, Roland Todd, at uh, Kings Hall, Manchester, for 20 rounds. At the weigh-in, Johnson was 22. And uh, at the time of the fight, he was inside the stipulated weight limit of 158 pounds. Todd was slightly above uh, 160 pounds. Um, there was a crowd of 7,000 people, and uh, and at that time, that was the largest crowd that had ever attended a boxing match in Manchester. So Todd was beaten for the first time in England since his return from America. And John uh, Johnson, Lynn Johnson beat him by points this time. So he won by points after losing by points on several different different occasions. But he started he started small and he took his losses in stride and he won and and uh, he started winning and he started getting very good and he eventually even traveled not only to Denmark he traveled all the way to Australia. So when he when he got to Australia it was announced that he was to be fighting um the Australian champion by the name of Harry Collins. So 
but when he when he when he got there he acknowledged that uh, uh he acknowledged that a colored man can't hold the Lonsdale belt um so he he affected he he expected to be first billed to box Harry Collins but the there were several things going on and things were moved around and and whatnot but um uh it, Johnson had stated that uh down under that he is the holder of the English title though the British boxing board of control rendered it vacant by taking it away from Rolling Todd Roland Todd um owning to his color Johnson cannot fight for the English title and his contest with Collins cannot be for the championship of the British Empire but um you know it, it was a 20 round contest and Johnson brilliantly defeated Harry Collins he he beat him on points to win uh the vacant British Empire title so and it was witnessed by 12,000 spectators at the Sydney Stadium, it it, it 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 they couldn't just let it come down to be the better the better fighter. They had to they had to try to rule him out just because of uh, the color of his skin and the fact that his his dad was from Sierra Leone. But you know it was a it was a very uh, clinical bout, and Johnson really uh, showed his skills in this bout. But uh, you know, the eventually, eventually the there was a there was a bar on people of color gaining these titles. And it was called the Color Bar, and it was it was in force even under Johnson's win, and, and it was the win was deemed illegitimate by National Sporting Club and other authorities in Britain. But uh, in 1926, um. There, there was an article where uh, they, you know, uh, they spoke of disdain for the British attitude in barring Johnson from the win, and uh, it, peop, uh, th- there were there were some people who were uh, it was claiming it was unfair discrimination, which it was. The thing about it is, is after after his defeat of Collins. Um, Johnson went on to meet uh, a man by the name of Tiger Jack Payne um, for 20 rounds at the Sydney Stadium on March 6th, which resulted in Johnson winning via points uh, a decision again. Um, and, it, and it was also uh, a good fight. And it was, you know, Johnson displayed a lot of, uh, a lot of skill in this fight as well. But um, I believe that he... You know, so he he was returning from Australia, and in, in 1926, uh, his his recognition as middleweight champion of the British Empire was dropped uh, when Tommy Milligan's victory over George West was officially advertised by promoters in Britain as being for the vacant British Empire title. So two other guys fall, and that they they gave it they gave the the win of this fight to Tommy Milligan. So Tommy Milligan got the title because they didn't acknowledge Johnson was the rightful owner of the title because he did not have two white parents. Um, how preposterous, but, um, you know, this Milligan guy was referred to as the, 
as the champion of the British Empire. The decision was not universally approved, and the pair were brought back in November. So Tommy Milligan fought George West and was named and uh he was named the title holder of the British boxing title. But 1926 after John after Lynn Johnson returned to England after completing his successful tour of boxing in Australia, he fought and outpointed George West on the 10th of September. However, the decision was not universally approved. Uh, the pair were brought back in November to a crowd of 6,000 in Manchester, which Johnson won by a wider margin. So, uh, this guy fought constantly, man. This guy was fighting like... These dudes were fighting much more than the boxers fight today, it seems like. Uh, it seems like you only hear about a couple of big boxing matches a year now. But back then, these guys seemed like they were fighting like every every you know two months. These dudes were putting on these huge events and then doing small shows in between and really that's how you uh that's how you keep it that's how you keep it tight but you gotta you gotta keep doing it and it's just uh it's amazing how how much of this stuff was going on uh johnson and so later years johnson his early life in, in 1926 johnson married uh, a woman by the name of annie forshaw a former bookbinder of Irish descent, though sadly, while he was in the United States trying to launch his boxing career, one of their two children became ill and uh, died. Johnson later revealed that they did not make it home in time for the child's burial. Uh, following this tragedy, Johnson traveled back to America and stayed at the Grupp's Gym in New York, where he sparred with Ted, Kid Lewis, and Mike McTigg, though an American debut fight fell through when uh, Phil Kaplan turned the fight down. His marriage with Annie eventually fell, fell apart and they divorced. And Johnson later remarried Maria Reed, um, a sister nurse whose three white children he adopted. Uh, later, uh, Maria's sister died. The pair would go on to adopt her three children, and he he became a close friend by the name by the by a man by the name of Paul Robeson, who was an American singer and a political activist, and they corresponded by letter for thirty years. Uh, he uh, Johnson was a teetotaler and a member of the Lancashire section of the Showmen's Guild of Great Britain. While working as a truck driver in later years, Johnson began writing a monthly boxing column for the Daily Worker. And he was instrumental in forming the first ex-boxers association in Manchester in 1952, where it would eventually become the ex-boxers association of Great Britain. Uh, by the age of 70, he managed to retire from his job as a foreman for Jack Silverman and Oldham, and once remarked that, if I had been a champion, things would have been different. Right. So Johnson wrote an autobiographical essay on his life. Um, part of his collection of works at the Working Class Movement Library in Salford, which also includes records and documents from the 1945 Congress. Wow. Uh, Johnson had given up active boxing, but he was still connecting himself to the sport. He was refereeing. And uh, he was he was a boxing trainer, 
and, and all kinds of things like that. Um, but he and he had a he he had a boxing booth. He devoted himself to his boxing booth, and he toured it for a, a number of years. And he uh, he eventually sold his booth when World War II began. And he worked in the Civil Defense Rescue Squad in Manchester, where he entered air raid damaged buildings to retrieve the injured or dead. Um, Johnson later joined the unit in Cumbria as a specialist in first aid and physical training, uh, to which his group officer A.C. Rower remarked that boxing was the one subject he never talked about, and he never encouraged any young person to become interested in this subject. So he didn't he didn't try to steer people into boxing. It's it's probably because there was a lot of he he experienced a lot of injuries in the ring and stuff, and that was probably why he uh, he didn't you know talk about it too much. But he served um he served with the with distinction in the National Fire Service, in which he received promotion. After the war, he worked as a bus driver only for tragedy to strike when a child stepped out into the road and was killed by the bus he was driving. He also worked... God, man, this guy just... This guy's been through a lot. He also worked as a bookie and had driven fire engines in Moss Side from 1939 as a part of his role in the Transport and General's Workers Union. Uh, he worked as a lorry driver for Jack Silverman in Oldham and... He, he, he did a lot of matchmaking for boxing shows in uh, 1947 and 1948. In 1949, uh, he announced, Jack, uh, Lynn Johnson announced that he was offering free tuition to, to aspiring young boxers at his club, um, to which he stated, This is no catch, no scheme to find and exploit potential champions. I just feel I can help along youngsters who fancy the game and teach them things they ought to know. Um so he didn't encourage people to get into boxing, but he would help out um, uh, already people who were boxing and, and things like that. And he did a lot of humanitarianism, and he got into a lot of politics. And uh, because of his encounters with racism and uh, his ob- observation of poverty and uh, in Britain, it led him into uh, radical politics. Um, but, uh, you know, they... he. The daily worker for which he had worked for, uh, they they waged a groundbreaking campaign against the the color bar in boxing, so they were trying to get it lifted and and stuff like that. Yeah, this guy, there's just there's a lot. This guy has got a lot of stuff. But uh, in 1954, um, some health problems resulted in him spending several months uh, convalescing at a Black Sea resort in the Soviet Union for a uh, new uh, pneumonectomy. They removed one of his lungs, and later he returned to England to resume his political activism in the Communist Party. He, he lived for years in relative anonymity and growing poverty, and by the early 60s, Johnson's physical health was in a decline. Um, but his, uh, his wife, Maria... By the early 60s, Johnson's physical health was in rapid decline, um, of which he spent at Waterloo Street, Oldham, with his wife, with his wife Maria. Uh, Johnson died on the 28th of September 1974 at Oldham General Hospital. Uh, the Morning Star ran an obituary written by Jim Arneson, 
Johnson died two years before Britain passed the landmark Race Relations Act 1976, thus did not see the faltering progress as Britain evolved into an ever more diverse multiracial nation. In his obituary for the Manchester Evening News, he was quoted as saying, I was never a fighter, always a boxer, and all for a fiver and second-class traveling expenses. Uh, there's there's some memorials to him um, at uh, Piccadilly Gardens, some statues and stuff. Um, and if you're in uh, England, around that area, you should check it out and do some research on the guy. And I'd like to see a documentary about this guy. So that's this is this is my this is the end of my part two of talking about the history of uh, boxing and uh, two lesser known uh, people who were just big. They 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 really made a headway in boxing and the early days of it. Uh, one of them a woman, and one of them a person of color, a man of color, and he was not talked about a lot and. I had never heard of him until I'd started doing some research, but uh, thanks for listening, and uh, keep tuning in, and please uh, feel free to give me a good rating on whatever you're listening to this on. Um, it it A lot of work goes into this, actually, and um, if you'd like to help out in any way, I'd appreciate it. I do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash the Leon Lounge. And uh, don't uh, don't hesitate to throw me a dollar or something uh, if you don't mind. But all right, guys, thanks for tuning in and uh, stay smooth. Mm-hmm.